We're in the Gospel of John today, chapter 12. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your device, I encourage you to turn to uh, that portion of Scripture. And I want to begin today by asking you a question. If you knew that you only have one more week to live, how would you spend your time? And would it be any different from how you spent your time this last week? A number of people were asked that very question. One person responded by saying, okay, one week, what would I do? I would travel as far as I could, stay in the best hotels, eat in the finest restaurants, and put everything on my credit card. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody else, actually a church leader, responded by saying, what would I do? I'd go home and clean my house. Yeah. Somebody else who I thought had an interesting and creative response said, I would make a video for my children. In it, I would encourage them not to become bitter or angry at God over my loss, but I would want to communicate to them my values, especially my commitment to Jesus Christ. So what would you do if you knew that you only had one week to live? Well, as we come to this, the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is certainly very much aware of the fact he only has a few more days to live, and he chooses to spend his time intentionally, not so much in a public ministry, where he's engaging uh, the crowd in miracles or in teaching, but rather in a more private ministry, where he's seeking to prepare his disciples for his departure through death. And as he does all of this, we find that the countdown begins, and as it does, we see how a variety of people respond to Jesus, especially his message about the cross. So today we're gonna look at six different reactions to Jesus Christ. And as we do, I want to encourage you to be engaged, to step into the story, and to do some honest heart reflection before God as to where you are today in terms of your relationship to Jesus. You willing to do that? Okay, I hope so. Let's get started by looking at the first of the six reactions. It's a reaction of service. So if you're using your sermon notes, you can write that one down. Reacting with service. This is how the 12th chapter begins, verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, by tradition, this is a Saturday, which means that the next day mentioned in verse 12 would be, of course, Sunday, not just any Sunday, but Palm Sunday, okay? So it's six days before the Passover, that annual event that where the Jews got together, pouring into the city of Jerusalem in order to celebrate God's amazing work of deliverance as they were led out of Egypt into freedom. So Jesus chooses, we're told, to spend the day with friends in Bethany. Now I want you to notice how Bethany is described. Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. You know, you can ask somebody, how would you spend the last few days of your life? But you can't ask anybody, how was it being dead? You know, but that's exactly what we could have asked Lazarus if we lived back then. Lazarus, how was it being dead? I mean, 
my mind is just filled with all kinds of questions. I would want to ask this man, and hopefully when I get to heaven, I can ask Lazarus, how was it being dead? Well, at any rate, we read in uh, verse 2, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So here we have the first reaction to Jesus recorded in this chapter, Martha served. The parallel passages in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark indicate to us that Martha is serving and it's not even her house. We're told it was the house of a man named Simon the leper. So here Martha is serving and it's not even her house. I mean, have you ever met anybody like this? You invite them over for a meal, and all they want to do is prepare the food, serve the food, clean up afterwards. You know, Valor and I try to find out who they are so we can invite them over to, no, just kidding, no, no. But Martha was like that. She's occupied with serving a significant group of people. I count at least 16. We've got Jesus, the 12 disciples, Lazarus, his other sister, Mary, the man who owns the house, Simon, Simon the leper. So we've got all of these people she's serving and this is her mindset. And you have two examples present of the power of Christ. Simon, this ex-leper, and Lazarus, an ex-dead man, okay? And you just sense in reading over this story that at least two things characterize Martha's service. One was she no doubt does this out of gratitude to Jesus who had raised her brother from death. And the other is the motivation of love itself for Christ and wanting to, uh, to honor him. But if you think about it, those are always the two outstanding characteristics that mark genuine service to God. So we're not called to to uh, draw attention to ourselves. We're not celebrities or superstars. Elsewhere, Jesus makes the comment, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So if you're interested in greatness, where does it come from? It comes from serving other people. Elsewhere, he says in the same chapter, for even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. So really, there's no place for self-promotion or selfishness in the body of Christ. We're servants. And so that means learning to become people helpers, not people users, where we're concerned to give rather than to simply take. Can you imagine what your family could be like, what your marriage could be like, what the workplace could be like, what your school could be like, if each one of us had a sensitivity level that was raised concerning this whole matter of serving other people. I wanna challenge you today to consider how in this Holy Week you can actually become more servant-minded. So ask yourself the question, okay, as I enter into this special week where my focus is Jesus and what he went through on my behalf, what can I do, especially this Holy Week, to demonstrate the attitude of a, of a servant? So it's not primarily our checking off chores or projects on the list. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a mindset where out of gratitude for what Christ did in love for us, we seek to serve other people. So where are you in this story? And is that your reaction to Jesus, reaction of service? Now, the second of these six reactions comes from Martha's sister, 
Mary. I want you to notice now verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. Well, how expensive was it? Well, we read a little bit later on in verse 5, it was worth a year's wages, okay? Very expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house, we're told, was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here's Mary. She takes the most precious thing that she has and spends it all on Christ. But that's the way it is with worship, isn't it? I mean, it gives its all, and its only regret is it doesn't have more to give to the person of Jesus Christ. Which makes me wonder, what is the most extrav extravagant thing you've ever done for Jesus? And uh, did you regret it? You know, I doubt it. Or here's another question. If you had a year's wages to give to the cause of Christ, what would you, what would you give it to? What would, where would that money go? And what is really prohibiting you from giving part of it even now? Now, your most valued possession may be very different from mine, but could you give it up for Jesus Christ? And if, if there's a way for you to do a portion of it now, why not? Where would that go? Well, Matthew and Mark in their gospels indicate to us that Mary anointed Jesus' head and his shoulders. John is the only one who tells us that uh, she also anointed Jesus' feet. We know it was a sign of honor to have one's head anointed. Kings, prophets, priests in the days of the Old Testament had their heads anointed. But who ever heard of anointing feet, right? I mean, what in the world is going on here? Well, we're told that he, Mary even wiped them with her hair. Well, in Israel, no respectable woman would consider letting her hair down in public like this with a number of men present, certainly, in order to engage in, in such an activity. But this wasn't some calculated plan on the part of Mary. She's responding like this as a spontaneous, humble, loving act of worship. So it makes me wonder as we enter this holy week and think about Jesus' death, how can we pour perfume on his feet? In other words, is there some loving act of worship you can perform? I don't know what that would be for you. Maybe for some of you it would mean in your studies, in your workplace, you're, seek to functioning, you're seeking to function with intentionality, with faithfulness and dedication to Christ. So you're there on time. You're doing your school work on time. You're seeking to do so with the spirit of excellence as a way of demonstrating your affection for Christ. Maybe, maybe that's what it is for you. Maybe it means coming to our Monday Thursday service where with the brook we engage in celebration. Maybe it's the Good Friday service for you. But once again, put yourself into this story and ask yourself, is that where I am in this story? I mean, is my reaction to Jesus one of authentic worship? So service, one reaction, worship, another one. Well, now we come to a couple of negative reactions. The third reaction is that of selfish ambition. And with verse four, we have the first recorded words of Judas Iscariot in all the Bible. This is what we read. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. 
Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Sounds so noble on the part of Judas, doesn't it? Oh, wow, look at how this man cares for the homeless. He's so concerned for the poverty-stricken. Well, not really. The guy was a fake. So writing years later, John adds this to the story. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, sort of the treasurer for the disciples, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Wow. What I find so incredible about the story of this man, Judas, is that he spent the better part of three years with the person of Jesus. I mean, he heard more, mirac- heard more sermons, observed more miracles than certainly Mary or Martha did. He lived so close to the truth, and yet the guy had money on his brain. So much so that the other gospel writers tell us that after this incident, he left the home in Bethany, crossed the two or three miles over the the Mount of Olives, down in the valley, into the city of Jerusalem, in order to meet with the authorities to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Well, some of us also may be selling Jesus. Some today can sell him for financial success. Others can sell Jesus out in order to enjoy the acceptance of their friends. Or for others, maybe it's a matter of selling Jesus for ambition or self-glory. Whatever it is that keeps you from living for Jesus is the price that you are willing to pay in order to sell him. Well, this rebuke by Judas is followed by a rebuke by Jesus. The other gospel writers tell us that Judas got the other disciples to agree with him at all of this. And so Mark in his gospel says the disciples were rebuking Mary harshly. Matthew adds, they were indignant. So now Jesus adds his rebuke to all of them. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. So evidently, Mary knows that Jesus is going to die. He, she had no doubt heard him predict his coming death. Perhaps she's thinking, well, if he gets turned over to the authorities, I won't have the opportunity to worship him in this way. So she decides to do this on this particular occasion. At any rate, Jesus adds this in verse 8. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So it's as if he's saying, understand your priorities here, okay? Recognize the value of such acts of love while they can be expressed. Nobody here knows how much more time we have to live, to give, to demonstrate to Jesus our love for, by our sacrificial deeds, but certainly the time is now. So do you really love Jesus Christ, or like Judas, are you allowing selfish ambition to occupy first place? first place. Maybe for you it's all about career advancement, or it's all about dating relationships. It's all about peer approval. So ask yourself, where am I in this story? Is that my true reaction to Jesus? Well, fourthly, there's a reaction to Jesus based on convenience. Convenience. So with verse 12, we come to the next day, that is the day after Jesus was anointed by Mary, Five days now before the cross. 
By tradition, Palm Sunday, and this is what we read in verse 12. The next day, so Sunday, Palm Sunday, the great crowd that had come for the festival, that is of Passover, some estimate it could be like 200,000 additional people that have come into the city on this occasion. They heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. I mean, what great hopes these people had. They had heard the story, the reports that he had raised a man who had been dead for four days. He must be the Messiah. Maybe he's coming to drive out the Romans that are occupying our land and, and he's gonna set us free. Wow, this is amazing. So everything that they do here has political overtones, okay? First of all, it says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Why palm branches? What was that all about? Well, the palm branch was their national symbol. It appeared on their coins at this time. So it would be like our going to a political gathering of some type, maybe in waving a little American flag or Maybe it's a 4th of July parade down Hennepin Avenue in Minneapolis, you know, and we're waving our, our national symbol, okay? So here they are waving their national symbol, the palm branch, and we're told that they shouted something. What did they shout? Hosanna. Do you remember what Devin said Hosanna means? Apparently not, okay. <laughs> Lord, save now, okay? And it's in the present tense, which suggests to us repeated action, maybe even a chant. So they're waving their national symbol, the palm branch, and they're chanting, perhaps, save now, save now, save now. And to that, they add a couple of verses of scripture from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Psalm 118 is part of a collection of psalms known as the Conqueror Psalms. And what is so interesting, at least to me, is that these exact statements were quoted and, and sung by the people about 100 years before this in the city of Jerusalem as they welcomed back their conquering hero, Simon Maccabeus, who had saved the country, driving out the Syrians from their control. I mean, you put all of this together and you see what Palm Sunday is really all about as far as the crowd is concerned. These people looked to Jesus as their kind of Messiah. He was their conquering hero. Just a matter of time before he drives out the Romans and he's gonna set us free. They could not have been more mistaken. Now, is Jesus the Messiah? Well, of course he is. That's why he comes riding into the city on a donkey's cold in fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy that goes way back to the days of Zechariah. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So a king would come riding into the city on a horse if bent on war, come riding into the city on peace if bent on peace. So Jesus wasn't their kind of Messiah at all. Isn't it amazing that these people could be so wrong in their expectations of Jesus? But it makes me wonder, what false expectations do some of us have when it comes to Jesus Christ? I don't know, maybe we think he ought to satisfy my needs. 
Jesus should conquer my problems. Jesus should make my life comfortable. He should heal my, my uh, ailments, my, my difficulties. He's sort of like a genie. You know, we stroke Jesus with our prayers, with our religious activity, in order to encourage him to respond to us with minor miracles. I mean, isn't that the way it's supposed to work? So if I have a child with a disability, Jesus should heal. If I'm out of work, genie Jesus should get me a new job. If I'm single and lonely, married, miserable, you know, Jesus ought to come to my rescue. Jesus should never, of course, allow strokes or heart difficulty or cancer or death. Friends, that is a Christ of convenience. Jesus does not exist to make life comfortable for any of us. Jesus doesn't exist in order to meet my expectations or yours. So here's the question. Is the Christ you say that you are following free to fulfill his purposes, not yours, but his purposes in your life? Or does he exist in order to fulfill your self-focused expectations? I mean, where are you in this story, okay? What's your reaction to Jesus? Well, there's a fifth reaction. It's a reaction that's based on curiosity. So with verse 20, we meet another group of people, certain Greeks, this is what we read. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. You say, who in the world are these Greeks and who cares? I mean, does it even matter? What's their purpose in this story? Well, no doubt they represented a class of converts known as God-fearers. God-fearers were Gentiles who were attracted to the Jewish faith by their monotheism and their high standards of morality. But they didn't necessarily come from Greece. There was a large contingent of these Greeks that lived on the eastern side of the Jordan River in an area known as the Capolis and more than likely to give further support to the idea that that's where they were from, we're told that they initially sought out one of the disciples named Philip. Why Philip? Well, he has a Greek name. Philip has, is the Greek name, and he was from this, basically this, near this same area of Decapolis. So Philip in turn brings him to Andrew. And if you know anything about Andrew in the Gospel of John, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus, whether it's his brother, Peter, or a boy with a brown bag lunch, you know, in John 6. He's always bringing people to Jesus, and he brings these curious Greeks to Jesus as well. So if we bring the curious to Jesus, maybe you're curious today to find out more about Christianity, or you know of somebody in the workplace, school, who's kind of interested in Christianity. If we bring the curious to Jesus, what kind of a message are they likely to hear? Well, Jesus makes it clear that the message they most need to hear is a message about him and his cross. So everything now that Jesus says focuses our attention on the cross. To begin with, he's anticipating it, okay? So here are all of these people, they're shouting their slogans, their you know, nationalistic themes and all of this when Jesus turns their vision from conquest to a cross, all right? So the presence of these Greeks is sort of a sign to Jesus that he's soon to die for the sins of the world. And in anticipation of that, this is what he says in verse 23. The hour has come. 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Well, Jesus is the seed that has to die, and we're the harvest. We're part of that harvest group. People who have come to saving faith in Christ because of his fulfillment of his mission on our behalf. Well, you can imagine the reaction of all of these people, this crowd, about all of this death talk. Come on, Jesus, we're after liberation here, not all of this death stuff. What's that about? So you notice that Jesus' message to curiosity seekers is this, verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. It's as if Jesus is saying, I hold before you a cross and a throne. Right now, you're on the throne. You're calling the shots. You're determining where you go with your life. But if you want what I have to offer you, eternal life, purpose, meaning, existence beyond the grave, you need to crawl down off that throne and get up on the cross and essentially die. Die die to pride, die to life about you, and let me get up on the throne and call the shots of your life. Interested? So that's Jesus' message to the curious. From anticipating the cross, he moves to a description of its anguish for him. Notice, now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your, your name. And then a voice come, came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said, no, maybe it's an angel that, that spoke. Jesus says, no, their voice was for your benefit, not mine. So anticipation, anguish. And then he talks about what the, the cross is going to achieve. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So the cross will bring about a decisive defeat of the devil. And it's also going to lead to the salvation of all kinds of people. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people, all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles and young and old, to myself. So to those who are curious, Jesus says your only hope is a cross. And by the way, that's your only hope today as well. This symbol of death, which is sometimes worn around the neck, piece of jewelry by Christians, the cross, is also a symbol of rescue for you. Rescue from a life of serving yourself and pride and, and sin and brokenness. Rescue from the world and the control of its prince. So it's as if Jesus is asking, are you interested? I mean, that's the message. Now we might think, well, people must have been amazed with such a wonderful message about the cross and everybody just responded to Jesus and went home, right? Not exactly. So next we come to reactions of unbelief and belief. Look at verse 37, we have the response of the crowd. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, 
they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. I mean, what a warning, huh? This is amazing. Listen, the terrible consequence of people who resist the gospel and harden their hearts against the things of Christ is that God may harden them. Now, please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that God prevents somebody from turning in faith to him who really wants to. Of course not. He warns, he proclaims good news, he offers Hope beyond the grave, he calls us to repentance and faith, right? But when people, after repeated warnings, reject Jesus, there is the possibility of being hardened in unbelief, where their unwillingness to believe is re rendering them unable to believe. And so God is simply giving people exactly what they want. They don't want Jesus, and so he turns away. That's why God says to seek Christ while he may be found. Okay, well fortunately some religious leaders did believe, we're told in verses 42 and following. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. So some leaders named later on like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, a few others did believe, but because of social pressures, at least for a time, remained secret or silent followers of Jesus. So there you have it, six different reactions to Christ. So I wanna ask you once again, where are you in this story? Which of these six reactions would you say best described your response today? I mean, hopefully it's a response like, Martha, service, Mary, worship. Although maybe for some of you, it's more of a reaction like the crowd following a Christ of convenience who exists in order to deliver you from problems and make life nice and comfortable for you. Maybe Jesus captures your attention and you're curious. And so you're like the Greeks. You'd like to know more about Christ. I hope so. I hope that's the case. Or maybe we're like those who hear about Jesus, the message of his cross, and we're willing today to believe. In light of all of these different reactions to Christ during this special week, let me encourage you to trust him, to reach out to him, and then let's express our faith with extravagant, humble, loving acts of worship and service. May God grant that to each one of us. Let's pray together. Father, we so thank you today for sending Jesus Christ to a cross he certainly didn't deserve, that we might be forgiven and experience your grace. And so it's because of Jesus that we've come this morning. And so we ask that thoughts of him will linger in our minds during this eventful Holy Week and even beyond of what you have provided for us in him. Help us to examine where we are in terms of the story. Help us to turn in faith to Christ in new and fresh ways. And may Jesus and his cross motivate us 
to live lives of worship and service. For his sake we pray. Amen.